Welcome back to Dylan Friends. This week on the show, we've got one of my good friends that I've just met in the last couple of years, but I really love this guy. I've learned so much off him just, you know, in business and life. And he's been a real good mentor and supporter of, of the show and, and everything else we're doing. Um, and I thought it'd be silly not to get him in the studio and actually give some wisdom to everyone else out there because just a good guy. I think he stands for everything that I want to stand for when it comes to, you know, life and living and working and enjoying what you do, but also working really hard. And I love that about him. So Adam Linforth, who's the, the chief smuggler at Budgie Smugglers, um, he's definitely the CEO, but I think he's the sort of guy that would not want to be called the CEO because he's just such a, a legend. Um, but yeah, I've been a massive supporter of Budgie Smugglers for a long time. We're lucky enough to you know have a relationship with Dylan Friends now with Budgie Smuggler. But I honestly, I've been wearing this product since I first got into the AFL. And it was one of those things like I said to myself one day, when I was wearing, I was like, wow, imagine being sponsored by Budgie Smuggler. And, you know, I look back now and we are, and we've got a really cool relationship with the team, not just Adam, but um, BJ as well, who, who's an absolute legend. And, um, yeah, blessed to have these guys and, and learning so much off them. But, yeah, just spoke about his journey in, in life and business and how he got into things and, you know, not just with Budgie Smuggler, but the work he was doing with AIM um, and Indigenous communities before that. And, and I suppose not just running a business, but having social impact as well and, and keeping things Australian made and, and his values that, you know, I really enjoy. It's not just about making money, it's about doing good things. And that's why I really love working with these guys, which, is, which has been really cool. So excited for this one. I think, again, you know, I love chatting with business people. And if, if you're starting a business or looking to start a business or just like learning from people, this chat will be really beneficial. And yeah, I hope you get as much out of it as I did. Yoo-hoo. Hi, fam. It's Dylan's mum, Deborah. This is Dylan Friends. He's like, you can embarrass yourself. And I was like, bro, do you want me to do all seven verses? Bit arrogant. Didn't know all yeah. seven. <laughs> I've been in a bad team for 10 years and we got a chance to do something pretty special this year. All you can do is put your hand up and say you're wrong. Banter is a way that guys connect, a way that we can kind of play it safe with someone until we get to know them. I try to fix people sometimes. I'm like, Dan, stop doing that. Just listen. And you stack on top of that the habit of not taking your phone when you take your dog. It's easy. They had no other way to get out of the cave and we either turn our backs on them, in which case they're going to die, or we give this crazy idea a go. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Linny, welcome to the Dylan Friends podcast, my friend. This is an honour, pleasure, privilege. How good. Stoked to be here. Hey, this is, you, you don't do a lot of these things. This is royalty to get oh. you on. Uh, yeah, like I gave it a good 10 year break of doing any <laughs> yeah. media at the start, but I, I really love this sort of like longer for, format where you can you can get deep. I know you like going deep, so... We- well, yeah, I do like getting deep in conversation. That yes. is that in podcasting. Um, that was weird. Yeah, no, deep in podcast, definitely. I know we've got a few twisted minds out there, and we should make that clear. Yeah. Um, hey, let's set the tone um, of how we first came into friendship, I suppose, which we were both just mystified before of how that actually even happened. But oh, I think I have a better memory than yeah. Well, I actually don't know how you know me, but I know how I know you guys. Go for it. Well, I have been a big supporter of Budgie Smuggler my whole career. Like my whole sporting career, my whole life. I've loved smugglers. I was, I feel like I was nearly the first person to bring them into AFL. Okay. I Genuinely. I could actually, this could be true. I, I feel like I was, and yeah. I, I probably wasn't, but I feel like at least Victoria, I, I was the first person to bring in Victoria. And um, when we first met up and we, we made contact like early, maybe late last year, early this year. And I was going back through the emails trying to find something. Yeah. And I actually had emails with BJ sitting in the studio today back from nearly 2012 yeah. ordering the first pair of custom smugglers for our footy trip. Yeah. And for like context, like no one was really buying smugglers at this stage. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, it wasn't your average like 
person, particularly in Victoria. Like New South Wales, we were a bit further along, but it was it was probably about five or six years later before just regular people um, cottoned on. So, yeah, it was so weird just like running through those emails. Everything looked like more tire, like an older logo and stuff. So, um yeah, a bit of thanks in order as no, well for no, for, thank you. for kicking it off. Um, and I suppose from there, we you know we've done some business together, we've done other things together. But for you both, um, you know, I, I think for everything really, you've just been good mentors and and friends for me now in the industry. Even though we're in different businesses, I feel like it's very transferable, and I've learned a lot off you guys. And I thought it'd be remiss of us not to have a chat today and hopefully share some of your knowledge um, off to everyone else because I know there's there's so much in that big brain of yours. You've got a big bonce, don't you? Got I've, got a big, a, I've got a – That's a big bonce. Big head. Yeah. I don't have the brain ticks along yeah. quite as quick, but, yeah, been in a few, like, sort of mini battles and wars, and that's what it's like in business. Like, you know, you, you just it's, – it's like just trying things step by step and, like, you know, probably a big one for us is, like, we're a swimwear company, but our – probably famous for – selling swimwear to people that like don't swim so like we'd be we're big in like afl and 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 cricket and rugby league and union but like none of them are water sports Mm. and you know so a a lot of it for for me is like uh just having like gone through some battles and you're just getting nowhere and and then you figure it out and then you readjust and, and and go again and if you can hang in there long enough um Hopefully you come out the other side all right. Well, that you guys have, like, you know, I'm, I don't know if this is biased, but I absolutely love what you guys are doing. I feel like it's one of the most Australian and most iconic brands in our, in our country and I can't wait for it to keep growing. Not that people already know what it is, but I think let's go back because yeah. I don't really know what you were doing before this. Um, I have a little bit of an idea of how, um, you know, you found the business, but before this, what were you doing? Did you always want to be a business owner? Like, what no, was your- like I just, I was kind of like reasonable enough at school, going to uni. I'm like, I'll go to uni and get a job like in a, like a bank or account, like just something pretty, pretty boring. Um, old man had like worked for an engineering business and he had a share in it. So like maybe out of that, I kind of, um, thought I might want to own my own thing one day, mm-hmm. but it wasn't like I didn't have this like Gary Vaynerchuk. I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Like, z- really wasn't cared about that. Yeah. I'm like, I'm just going to get a decent job. Um, that'll help me to like have fun, go surfing, um, go on circuit. Like that. That was as far as my thinking had got. And so I finished uni. I got a job with ANZ Bank. So it was like a graduate there. That was pretty good experience to begin with. Like they send you down to Melbourne, so off of Sydney, for a week, a month, and it's basically like corporate schoolies. And you get like, oh a, God. you get a like a per diem, like a hundred, like eighty bucks a day, and there's three hundred people from around the country. And then I got back into the actual office, and then you had to start working. I was like, oh my God, this fucking sucks. <laughs> I had. I had zero interest and then pretty quickly I'm just like clock watching, looking out the window each day going, I've got to be doing other things with my life. And it was around that period that sort of um, Budgie Smuggler and AIM and some other things came along. So um, I was just helping out Budgie Smuggler initially and uh, there was a bloke who ran it called Lockie Harris and he'd got a job as Kevin Rudd's press secretary so he's only a few years older than me. He was like 25 or something at the time. And I was just helping him out. Like um, we were talking before about like if your friends have a business, like how much help so many of them give you. 
And like, I was just a fan of Budgie Smuggler to begin with. So um, I loved it. I'd run the city to surf in, in Smugglers, go and take pictures around the world, um, wearing them. And then after they won the Kevin 07 election, he was like, called one day. There's a couple of us who were interested in maybe taking it over. And he called one day and it was like, Matt, he goes, mate, I've got to go to the UN to meet with like Obama and some like uh-huh. other people. So, oh, yeah, fair call. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he's like, do you want to like take this on? He's like, here's the price. It wasn't a crazy amount of money in hindsight, but like it was more than twice of what it was turning over. It was more than twice my salary as a graduate at the time. So it was like, it was a chunk. But I was like, oh, I'm, I'm keen for this. Don't love my day job. Um, I've got to do something else. So like at the time, people thought this is such a risky idea for me. Probably people who were listening to this going like, oh, should I leave my job? Is it risky? Um, for me at that stage, I was 100% certain that if I continued working at a bank, I was going to be unhappy and it was mm. going to um, be to my detriment of my health. So to take a risk and do something that I actually thought was cool and cared about um, w- was a no-brainer and so made the leap. With that as well, you know, I've spoken to a lot of, um, a lot of people in similar circumstances. Like you, you start something, uh, you're working for a job, which you, you can just see yourself like, fuck, this isn't me. This isn't what I want to yeah. do. I can't see myself doing this forever. And as you said, it could even come to the fact where you're like, fuck, I really hate this. Mm. What did you put did, – did you put anything in place – to help you transition from that to budgie smuggler? Because like for me, you know, on a, a lower level, when I was working at like 3AW, this radio station, I was like, fuck me, I cannot do this anymore. Yeah. But I knew financially I didn't, I couldn't not have work. So like it was a really slow like period of me for me to like Yeah, so it, it was funny how it happened for me. So while I was at the bank, uh, one of my best mates I was at university with, this Aboriginal bloke, Jack Manning Bancroft, he started a mentoring program called AIM. Yeah. And so I'd been helping him out on a volunteer basis, like doing the books for that. And he goes, mate, I'm going to set this up properly. Do you want to come and work for me like part-time um, or full-time even and, uh, and run our kind of accounts and then partnerships? I go like, mate, I'm – Look, I do your books. You've got no money. <laughs> There's a fucking stitch up. And he's like, mate, it's coming. It's coming. Yeah. I mean, many of these people, we're going to get some money in. And I was about 10 beers deep one night and I'm like, oh, fuck it. I'll do it. Like let's, and you know, um, Aboriginal people have been a huge influence on my life. And so I, it was something I was keen to be a part of. And so initially the plan was to work like three or four days a week at AIM. And then the other day or two a week, that would give me enough of a buffer to work on budgie. But then AIM kind of took over for four or five years and I was doing sort of 50, 60 hour weeks there. We went from three of us when I started to over 100 staff over that five or six year period. And I was traveling around Australia. So my job there was sort of raising money for the program. So um, and partnerships with the program. So it was based out of unis and schools and um, had like lots of strong corporate support. So I'd sort of be meeting with all these different groups. Uh, it, was a, it was an amazing job. Like it gave me a great ear for Australia because on a Monday I could be with a university vice-chancellor in the morning um, and then like the CEO of Goldman Sachs in the afternoon. Then on Tuesday I'd be in Perth at the 
like Swalls, like which is the Aboriginal Land Council there, then meeting some like crazy wealthy families in the afternoon, mm. Prime Minister's office in Canberra on a Wednesday. So it was like it was an incredible job and I was just balls deep in it. But sort of budgie for that period took a little bit of a call it kind of like the expensive hobby phase where I was just focused on the vibe of it and it growing, but I couldn't really put in too much love. Like, yeah, didn't have, didn't have that much love to give yeah. sort of thing, you know? I, I can, I, I feel like I know what you're saying here. Cause I, if this makes sense, I hope it does, but I feel like if something is just side hobby, um, it's always going to stay as a side hobby yeah. until you like take the leap into going like, no, I have to do this. Full-. There has to be that scary stage of going like, no, I have to do this now. Yeah. And so it's kind of sort of fortunate that after four or five years at AIM and when that team had grown, initially I was one person, I was doing the books and I was running all the partnerships. After five years, there was um, two other people in the partnerships team, two other people in the finance team. And I'm like, oh, I can... Eventually, it was like, oh, I don't even need to be here. Like, mm. they're better at the job than I am. And I had, um, yeah, Brendan, who's here um, today, and um, some other good people at, at Budgie at the time. And then over the next couple of years, started to be able to shift my energy um, towards, towards Budgie. And then it was funny, like, by the time I was going to make the leap to Budgie full time, like, I didn't need to be there either. Like, everyone was also better at, at the <laughs> job. So I'm like, fuck, what do I do? Yeah. You know? So. Um, my uh, missus at the time, she was keen to go and do something um, different overseas. So we looked at going like to the US or the UK and um, we landed in on the, on the UK, which I know doesn't make much sense. Um, for a swimwear brand. For a swimwear brand. Yeah. Um, but again, given that like the main people we sell to um, don't swim – um, there's plenty of people in the UK and Europe. So yeah, went there for four or five years until COVID. That's interesting. Cause I was like, like a part of the chat was going to be like, how I, I'd never understood why Budgie <laughs> is so big in UK. Like I was like, how these people don't swim. Now, we, <laughs> we have worked out earlier that, you know, the brand is more about sport than it is actually swimming. Like yeah. it's, it's one of those things that, you know, footy players, uh, AFLW, AFL, cricket, everyone will wear under their garments. Kit, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, that was the sort of start of it for the for the UK. And I think like now I think about it more almost like a community. Mm. And like, I never would have used that word to begin with because I feel it's like a bit cringe. Like, oh, we're building a community. But um, in hindsight, the main challenge we had at Budgie at the start was that we had a company called Budgie Smuggler in a world where people were wearing board shorts past the knees. Yeah. And – uh, no one was wearing budgies and that was all we made. So the challenge for us at the beginning was like, how do we make this accessible to like to regular kind yeah. of folks? So um, how we did that was instead of focusing, like I feel like most brands focus on the captain of the team or the best looking player or the, um, the most ripped. And we sort of looked at it a different way and we're like, we don't want the leader who's got like the captain next to their name in the team sheet. We want the, like the spiritual leader, like who's mm. singing the team song, like who's saying what pub are we going to <laughs> after the game? And that's the, you know, in football codes and other dressing rooms, um, that's the person like with a little bit more um, currency that maybe typical brands 
weren't kind of keen for. And then for me, like, it was just a hobby. So I'm like, they're the people I want to be spending my time with. So I think the good thing about the hobby phase of a business is that, you know, I probably had it for too long at Budgie, like eight years. But it meant we could just do things where we were interested. And, you know, one of the things is like making stuff in Australia every piece of advice I've ever got for the first 10 years, basically till COVID was like move your um, production and manufacturing offshore. And initially it was like three or four times cheaper in China or Vietnam or wherever. And then now it's only like 50% cheaper. So, you know, um, if it's two thirds the price to manufacture overseas, that's a bit of a difference, but like one third of goods that are mass produced end up in landfill. So when you actually bring it back, it's not too much different now to make stuff in Australia. And I, again, because it was a hobby, I wanted when you put on a pair of smugglers, I want you to feel something. And I feel that there's something about that made in Australia, the history of swimwear, Speedo, Seafolly, all these famous brands that we wanted to be a part of. Mm. And so that's why, yeah, it never really crossed our minds to, to change tack on where we made it. Yeah, well, it's, it's very admirable, I think, you know, without knowing the direct stats, like any other person or business in that position is definitely going to produce that overseas. You know, this is almost sad, like thinking about it, but we used to be made in, like have our stuff printed in the same factory that Bonds um, was made in. And there was mm. like a thousand people going to work there every day. You'd walk in, I'd walk in and hear the machines clattering and like seeing all this stuff like coming together. And there was all these different like pockets of, different groups you'd hear like Vietnamese radio then there's like Italian women speaking here and it was just such a great like melting pot of Australia and I really um, like it just something about it felt amazing they were creating all this stuff and then um, around that 2009-10 time um, sort of mining boom happened the Australian dollar became worth more than the US dollar. Like everything became so cheap to do overseas. Mm. Uh, and then all the factories shut. It's scary. It is. So like, I think we look at even like on a larger scale now, like Holden and even like car companies, nothing's made here at all. Like yeah. it's pretty, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And that period was really hard. And then it's like, not ironic. Um, they maybe held out for a few years now with the way things are manufactured. Like, um, Say our swimwear, back in the old day, you'd have a roll of fabric, someone would cut it out by hand, and then do you ever have those numbers where you like you get heat sealed on by no. or like ironed on? Oh yeah, on the back of your yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We had that like an industrial scale. So everything was So you like, ironed on the budgie smuggler. Well, like yeah, that. it was ironed yeah. on with the, just someone hitting <laughs> a thing. But there was so much labor yeah. involved. Now all our stuff's made through like digital printers then into a laser cutter it only needs to be sewed at the end so yeah that's part of the reason the australian dollar is probably a fair chunk of it but the biggest change in manufacturing costs is before you needed um so many hours to make a pair of smugglers Mm. now that's come right down and whether your printer's in um overseas or it's in Sydney doesn't actually change the the price, but in terms of monitoring quality and like what it comes out like, it's just so much easier to do when yeah. it's under your nose. Not saying, you know, nothing against uh, the older generation, but I feel like this generation is a lot more socially aware of like things that are going on in the world. Like they love things that are made in Australia um, or supporting, you know, our own country. 
Um, I have an idea for this other business that I have absolutely no time for, but I want, if it, if it does go ahead and it will, <laughs> I want it to be like really about more the environment, like to have something to do with the environment yeah. um, and, and be like sustainably sourced or have that like other, you know, uh, not just be a brand, but like stand for something as well. Cause I know for me, if I'm want to support something or be a part of a community, I want it to like stand for something else as well. Totally. And you read books like, is it the four hour work week or something like that? It's like, Oh, let's make a protein shake and put it in a, in a mass warehouse somewhere and mm. like sell it at a discounted rate. And that's not for me. You know, I'm like, I want to make something that people, um, care about that's had some sort of craftsmanship in it mm. and I'd rather do that and and sell less and um, yeah there'd be a feeling when you put it on and a, and a story behind it and people feel a part of something than just I'm gonna make x in the cheapest place possible and distribute it with as minimal human contact as possible like we, we even run our own warehouse and like most people are like don't do that but I love that when you call the phone for Budgie Smuggler. Like it's, a, it's a human who yeah. understands the brand and cares about it. Um, and that's important to us. And like maybe we could make 30 grand a year more, but I don't, I don't care. That's not kind of what it's about. It's about, um, yeah, building something that, you know, Australians um, are proud of. I'm sure along the way, starting business, there's always some lessons learned or sometimes we think, what the fuck am I doing? Like, is this ever going to work? Yeah. Does anything stick out to you in those early days? Oh, so I was over uh, confident at the beginning. <laughs> like, fuck, I thought it'd take off pretty quick because I, I had a background in surf boat rowing, surf life saving, and so everyone wore smugglers. Yeah. So that was just normal for me. And then the name Budgie Smuggler I thought was amazing. And then when I took it over, I called my mates and I'm like, mate, I, I'm taking over Budgie Smuggler. <laughs> like, like, as a joke or like, I'm like, no, mate, this is serious. Um, and they're like, mate – I think you've lost it. Yeah. They, and then I got on and checked the sales and there'd be none. And I go the next day and then there was none. And then I'm like, fuck, what have I done? I just believed in it. But I, I also thought like, what's important here is it needs to keep moving forward and I need to get the vibe right. And so one thing is like our initial business plan was just basically grow 50% a year. Initially I was trying to like, wanted it to go to America and like stuff like that. And I met with um, a bloke called Andrew Rich, who was the founder of or co-founder of Mambo. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling him all these plans. I don't know if your brain just starts racing and oh, you're like, I'm gonna, we're going to take, we're going to be in fraternities and everything like <laughs> this in the States. And he's like, Adam, how much are you turning over? I'm like, it's a bit of a rude question, but uh, 180,000. We were turning over less than 100. Um, and he's like, mate, you he just looked at me and he goes, you don't exist. And I was like, I've been working at Budgie three years now to get it to that point. And he just goes, mate, you do not exist. I was like, oh. And he goes, see that store, like little surf shop there? They're turning over like two, three times what you are. He's like, look at the beach there. He's like, there's one person in Budgie's, there's 500 people at the beach. He's like, you don't even exist in your own backyard. He's like, how are you going to take over America if you – if you can't win Manly mm. and like the Northern beaches, I'm like, Oh, fair enough. So if there was one important early lesson, it was, um, win your own backyard, like be relevant, um, in that space. Cause there's no way you're going to take on the world. If people 
go back to your home community, whether that's an AFL podcast or you're making a beer and people go, oh, fuck it, shit, and then um, you're fucked basically. So I think um, that was uh, probably one of the most important lessons early, like let's get Northern Beaches right, let's have players at our local rugby club wearing them and then sort of slowly spin out from there. When did you, you feel like that started to take off? Was there a moment? It took a while, but I remember after about five years, we had uh, one of the players, uh, Manly Rugby League players called me. Um, his name was George Rose. No Limit Boxing. Shout out to, uh, to those fellas. Shout out. Shout out to those fellas. We fellas. love boxing here. Uh, do you? <laughs> Not really, no. But, uh, <laughs> we do, uh, definitely. Our local rugby team, Manly Seagulls, had been sponsored by another rival swimwear brand. And they turned up and they only gave pairs to the good-looking players in the team and did a photo shoot. George, George was a bigger boy. Uh, he called me. He's like, Linny, mate, get me some smugglers and I'll get the boys at the club um, wearing them. And he was like the perfect person like that everyone wants to have beers with uh, in that team. And then by the end of the season, the other swimwear brand was paying like 200 grand a year um, sponsorship for a short sponsorship. And we had pretty much every player in the team wow. and smugglers. And it was around that time that I started going out. And literally for five years, every time I'd see someone wearing smugglers, I get so excited. It's, even now I do. But then I'm like, oh, it's a relative. Like, oh, it's my like, yeah. you know, <laughs> friend's, uh, friend's boyfriend, that sort of thing. So it took six or seven years, but we had – basically have had over 10 years of growth every year but has been between 30 and 80 percent and so it never really felt too crazy at the time but let's say we started at you know 50 grand a year it took five years to get to um 500 grand but then the next five we went to five million so every year though was still only like 40% or 60% growth. We never had a, a Justin Bieber moment where mm. like he gets in it and the brand takes off. But I feel that's helped us because the people that wear it kind of care about it. They've heard about it organically and know what we're about. So no, I feel like you'd, that's exactly how you want to grow though. It's like continual growth rather than a big spurt and then, you know, die off. I feel like a lot of those times when something becomes fashionable on a really – short time yeah. it's actually nearly detrimental like, yeah have you seen the, the curse of von dutch have you seen that yet no oh it's a really good but series. I liked so many brands when i was really growing good. up royale shoes i don't know if anyone no, remembers them ones, air no. walkers no no <laughs> no no those ones anyone here <laughs> under 35 years <laughs> no, no sorry man 36 yeah okay. yeah it's a good story um, <laughs> But no, I, I'm kind of like a little bit conscious of that as well, like not blowing up and becoming um, too sort of mainstream yeah. that um, the original people that, that got on board care about it. Like if there was another lesson um, that I learned. My, my grandfather was a, a cash register salesman and he talked about this story about how he um, worked for, for one business, he retired, and then this Japanese company called him and then he went to work from them for them and he switched all the people from his old business to the Japanese business 
and then he retired again. And he said the reason that he switched them all was because the original business he worked for had stopped looking after the people that were already in the tent and mm. his customers. And then the original business, which is NCR, which is the National Cash Register business, hired him back to switch them all back again. And he's like the Japanese sort of um, – didn't learn the same lesson and so now every time i go into a coles or woolworths every pos machine is an ncr machine mm. and i sort of think of my grandpa and i think like the most important thing at budgie is looking after the people already in the tent because you can think about chasing the us or chasing these other things but unless you're relevant for the people who started with you oh wow, yeah yeah you're not on a um not in a path to to success, I don't think. So that's it's, important for mate, us. It's such a good lesson. And I'm, it's something that I think about a lot, even just with the podcast. I th- you know, a part of me really wants to um, grow and diversify. And I think that that's inevitable and it has to happen. Yeah. Like you have to do different things and, you know, talk to business people, talk to brands, talk to fucking anyone. Like, yeah. I think there's another part of me that's like, I really do. I, I all, will always stay true to my roots and, yeah. and talk to sports people, talk to people about, you know, what they've been through, what they've learned from, like that's always going to be a consistent theme. Cause mm-hmm. I think, you know, if I started doing podcasts tomorrow, only talking to fuck, I don't know, like mental health advocates, everyone that's listened from the start, is just going to be like, what the fuck? Like, that's not why I started listening to this. Like, yeah. That's kind of it. So that's in our thoughts a lot. Like mm. um, even like the type of models and stuff that we use, like we did a modeling shoot the other day and we just put something on our Facebook and Instagram. Like we need a, a, Medium. Actually, we tried you. We first. tried me. I was busy, but so I we needed it, like yeah. a. Um, I, I don't think this rig would sell anything. That's that was why. Like I know there's it's ordinary rigs, but this one sucks at the moment. Like I think, it's, yeah, uh, we were looking for like a non-intimidating white guy. Or something. Okay, you know that's pretty much me. But I've, I've been playing a lot of golf lately, and I have the oh, look at those forearms. Well, I have. Well, I have the um. Like the, the cigarette tan. butt tan, like it's like you got the ciggy butt arms. So it's like the dark bit there, then you got the white bit up here, and even my calves are like burnt too. So it's not a good. When I was wearing these in Sydney, I was one of the hottest units. You wouldn't hire me because I was too good looking for these. <laughs> I was nearly too good looking. How are you hitting them? Terribly. Good. So ordinary, rig ordinary golf. But um, we'll, we'll <laughs> miss on that because people get annoyed when I talk about golf too much. Okay. Now <laughs> your business, everything's humming. There was one other little story that I. I came across about how you got some media attention and it was globally was at the Malaysian Grand Prix. Yep. Are you like, you happy to talk no, about no, this? No, yeah. more than happy to yeah. talk about it. Yeah. yeah. Statute yeah. of limitations yeah. has ceased. Yeah. So what actually happened with that? Did, did it get serious in the end? Because you, you were getting nearly accused of infiltrate, like, Oh, we like, got accused of like that. This was a coordinated plot against the Malaysian government, which it definitely um, w- was not. We actually didn't really have anything um, directly to do with it. But basically, a group of blokes who go on holidays each year. One person organises it, and no one knows where they're going. You just turn up to the airport and bring your passport. And so they were going to Malaysia for the Malaysia Grand Prix. Um, they got Malaysia flag budgie smugglers. Um, day's all going normal. Danny Ricardo's in second place. Um, normal afternoon. Everyone's happy. And then on the last um, lap of the course, Danny Ricardo takes down and, and wins the Grand Prix. And they're oh. just elated and they strip down into their smugglers and they celebrate and he's doing shoeys and they're, they're doing shoeys. And then someone's asked them to put some 
um, clothes on, but it's actually going down like pretty pretty well. One of them worked for Christopher Pine, who was the defence minister at the time, and then oh. I think maybe they Malaysians thought it was like some sort of um, orchestrated plot or something. So anyway, they all ended yeah. up in jail. Jesus. Um, and I was coming back from Bali at the time and then got back to the apartment in Manly where we were running Budgie Smuggler and there was like a media scrum at the door. And what I didn't know was that the Batuta advocate, um, someone had called them and said, was this an orchestrated plot by you and Budgie Smuggler? And they were like, yes, yes, it was. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so they've thrown you under. They've, they've thrown us under the bus. Oh, God. And then eventually I got a call in the afternoon. It was like the Herald Sun in Melbourne. And they're like, we're going to print that this was an orchestrated plot by you. I'm like, where is this coming from? I'm like, mate, print what you want. And then I called Batuta. I'm like, have you guys said it was an orchestrated plot? They're like, yeah, we did. And they're like, um, they called the journalist and um, who said, yeah, no, it wasn't an orchestrated plot. These guys had just had a good time. They didn't mean any harm by it. Um, they spent three nights in a Malaysian jail. All they got to eat was a cup of rice and a fish head Holy and a glass shit. of water. Um, and they got... They got released, fortunately, um, and everything's sort of okay. Um, now, it, it is funny. Our inquiries from Malaysia went through the roof. Like people wanting to buy the actual um, pair. So I don't think too much harm was um, was done. It was just a, a misunderstanding. Shit, that's – yeah, I didn't realise how serious that was. I didn't know they got put in jail. Yeah, 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 for like ages. Like it was a long time. And then the media is calling you and I'm like, I don't want to – Comment, comment yeah. too much because I didn't really know too much about it. Like we do about a third of what we sell is custom swimwear. Mm. And so we're doing pairs of, you know, we've got like most flags, um, you know, most of the main flags of the of the world sort of on it. So um, you know, I didn't want to be like, I don't know, say anything to get them in trouble sort of thing because that was way above my um, yeah, pay grade. Fun. Jeez, that's hectic. <laughs> that is hectic. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully they're okay. They're good, um, they're good. Business 101, I'd be silly to not <clears throat> ask you about some of these things. And to be honest, these are the things that I'm really interested in because yeah. I think I do a lot of them um, myself and there's been more fuck-ups than, than wins, that's for sure. But what would you say now, like, you know, you're back in 2007? Yeah. Starting Budgie Smuggler again, what would you say? Like, well, actually, first question, if you knew what you knew now, starting a business? Yeah. Would you do it? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I think like the first thing is if you can find something that you're kind of interested in or care about, mm. like I don't mind working reasonably hard and that sort of thing, but like if I was trying to – there's so many businesses that I'd just be horrible at. Like if I had to compete to the last dollar on price, like I'm probably not going to mm. get anywhere. So in that instance, like – Clothing's not a bad business because you can have like budgie smuggler in your drawer and something else in your drawer. It's not a race to the death. Whereas if I was running like a tech business, like you don't have two Facebooks really. Like there's only a few of those businesses that survive. So um, if you can kind of pick where you want to compete and it's something that you you give a shit about, um, that that's a good place to start. Like if you're going to start a sushi restaurant um, and you want to do – a thousand meals a day at a cheap price and that's your business model, then that's great. Or do you want to do 50, but it's like a thousand dollars a head? Like mm. I remember, um, I don't know if you heard the restaurant Noma in no. um, no. Copenhagen. So my mate 
um, brought that restaurant to Sydney for for a pop up when Barangaroo opened. And it was a thousand bucks a head for dinner. I'm like, mate, no one's gonna fucking go to this place. Like they had thirty thousand people on the wait list, you know, but they've only got a hundred spots a night. But that's ten grand a night mm. um, for dinner. So that's where they're competing, and they do that really well. For me, it was. Um, Budgie smuggles an area I'm happy to compete. So, yeah, I think find what you're kind of keen on and go hard at that. And then even if it is hard work, you'll you'll probably be all right. I'm just thinking about now is like finding your target market, like having the right target audience. You know, if you were targeting Budgie Smuggler to those same people that are going to pay a thousand bucks a night, it's probably not the same. It's not the right people to target at, is it? Yeah. Yeah. The wheelhouse is just like doing something that you care about with, people that you care about like the guests that you um have in you generally genuinely interested in them that comes across and then that comes across to the to the readers where uh, to the listeners but i guess a lot of people like that wouldn't be their their wheelhouse so find your wheelhouse go hard at it speaking of, of fuck-ups in in business now i know that um you i know the, where you're going with well this. this isn't budgie smuggling you've done nah. incredible things there it's a you know great brand that we yeah. love australian iconic yeah. But there was time where maybe you learned the lesson earlier than what you did with <laughs> your new business. Can you tell us about this story? Because it's one of the all times. And legally, we've checked this off. We're allowed to tell it now. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll find Statute out. Statute of limitations yeah. has um, has passed. But yeah, I was so Connex is working at a bank at a big four Australian bank. <laughs> 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 You're working on a set of clients, and I was a graduate there, so I, I'm the. I'm a long way down. No yeah. one gives a shit and I'm pretty checked out anyway. So they're not giving me anything to do. But it's the GFC. So they're firing floors of people at a time and like slowly with no effort on my own part, I'm creeping up in the level of like responsibility. <laughs> and eventually this old guy who worked on the neighbouring set of clients. So you have like lending of say $100 million across um, – across 40 different businesses was roughly um, what happened. Varying sizes. So they're kind of like small, medium um, businesses. So this old guy retired. So a young guy got promoted into into his position. It was like 24. And that same set of clients had a 22, 23-year-old guy. Kind of ran everything for the older for the older fella who'd taken off. And then he, he was really good at his job and he won the best young like business banker of the year. And we were at, uh, at a work function and he's like, I won the award <laughs> and like kind of parading it around. And this kid's just got a glass. It's like, smack! And glass him across the head. And then so we'll be like, oh, this will be interesting on Monday. And then so that kid got fired. And then so I got to take over that kid's job who'd been running everything. And I've just been laying low like, Make no impact. <laughs> Have no responsibility. And then all of a sudden, me and this other 24-year-old are in charge of this set of clients. I've got like no idea what to, to do. I've checked out. I'm about to leave the bank in a few months, in a couple of months' time. And uh, the phone rings. This lady calls and she's like, hi, it's it's Mary from so-and-so. She's like, look, we um, – we need to transfer two and a half million dollars to our Swiss bank account. I go, okay, like a bit, unu- bit unusual, <laughs> um, but no dramas. I'll just get the rates for you. 
done this before and uh, we need two directors' signatures um, to, to transfer the money to Swiss francs and then um, transfer it across. She said, no dramas, send through the paperwork and then she called me later that day and she goes, oh, look, Adam, sorry, we can't get um, the two directors' signatures. They're on a boat in the Mediterranean. I'm like, okay, good. Um, I'm like, well, I'm really sorry but I need the two directors' signatures. Don't hear from her for a while. Phone rings again. Uh, Adam, spoken with the directors. They asked me to ask, how long have you been working at the bank for? I was like, oh, 10 months? <laughs> it's like, we've been here for you know, 20 years. We're valued clients of yours. Transfer the money, like, or else, basically. Oh, like, so I spoke to my boss, he's like, 24. She said, oh, we've been transferring this money all the time. There's never been an issue in the past. Um, so I looked at the paperwork and I was like, they have been doing it. I asked my boss and he goes, oh, all right, let's transfer it. So I said to her, like, this is the rate. It's 1.06 Australian dollars to a Swiss franc, something like that, 2.5 minutes. She goes, yeah, no dramas. So I call up. You had to call up foreign exchange at this point in time. So I call up this desk and then they record it and then they record the boss as well. And I said, I need to transfer $2.5 million to um, Swiss francs. And they go, this is the rate. Yep. Is that okay? Yep. Do you have two director signatures? I'm like, yep. Yeah. And to my boss, yep. Anyway, transfer the money, no dramas. A couple of days passes. The lady calls back. She goes, like, sounding a bit more mafiosa kind of this time. Like, <laughs> yeah. Adam. Where is our money? I'm like, sorry, what? Transferred it. And she's like, uh, we don't have any money in our Swiss bank account. And then I look at their Australian bank account and the money's gone. I'm like, fuck. So I, me and the 24-year-old bloke have a little team meeting. <laughs> We're like, what's happened? And I'm like, I was just going to leave the bank. And I'm like, they probably know where I live. <laughs> Like, I'm in so much trouble here. And then we called around and we found out that we changed the money into Swiss francs, but they had an Australian dollar bank account, so they wouldn't accept it. So the money was just bouncing around, but it was the global financial crisis. God. And so exchange rates could move like 3 or 4% in a day. And then we were like, fuck, well, we've just got to transfer it back. So we called up foreign exchange we said, oh, we'd like to transfer our 2.78 or whatever million it was of Swiss francs into Australian dollars. And they're like, here's the rate. And it's like 1.087. And we just go, oh, fuck, we've lost 100 grand. They're like, do you have, um, do you have two director's signatures? We go, yeah. And then we're like, mate, what do we do? And then the money comes up in their account. Now we've made 100 grand. <laughs> You made them a hundred grand. We made them hundred grand. Oh. Well, we didn't make them a hundred grand. We paid the interest for the time the money was missing for like three days, and then uh, the, we made eighty-five grand. And then my boss got a bonus for um, <laughs> the best foreign exchange like windfall in um, Australia's head back. Oh. So um, if in doubt, just say yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was a nerve-wracking time. That's but, um, an all-time, and we probably won't go into maybe what those people were doing or who they were we don't know but the profitable business sounds scary yeah it's very sounds profitable sounds Fuck. Very get me into that yeah. what are we doing yeah no, that sounds very very two scary. and a half million quarter 
Biggest uh, obstacle you face in business and, and how did you get through it? The biggest obstacle was probably board shorts because yep. that's what everyone was sort of wearing. Like when we started, board shorts were past the knee, real like shin kickers. <laughs> so the <laughs> curtains of shame. Shin kickers is such a good so, name. So the, the, that was the biggest challenge for us. Yeah. And also that no one that looked like the guy I wanted to have beers with was wearing budgie smugglers. Yeah. So it was a fair fucking problem. Um, how do we go about uh, addressing it? Yeah, it was finding those people in the teams that, that you want to have beers with um, to wear them. And then some of it was time as well. It's hanging mm. in there. Like for the first four or five years, people said, oh, you're crazy. Like, it's not going to work. And then eventually you notice people uh, coming around. Like, at the beginning, people were like, get good-looking rigs in it, get swimmers in it, get the gay community in it. Like that. that's where this business can win. And I was like, no, I think – just regular blokes might get around this. So I think part of it is, you know, if you do believe in it, hanging in there because all the off-roads early were for a completely different business for us. It was made in China. It was good-looking people wearing it. Not that the people who wear it are, are all not good-looking, mm. but what was most important for us was the type of person that was wearing it. There was someone that you wanted to have a beer with, whether they were good-looking or not. Didn't matter. Love it. Obstacles. I feel like, I don't know if I said this in, in other chats before, but I think in my very short um, time in, in business, I, see, I don't even like that word business in just working. Same. It's a yeah, fucking yeah, shit yeah. I don't like, feel like I'm in business or weird, anything. It? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's quite strange. But in my short time in whatever this is we're talking about, um, I found that one of the things that I feel like the best people are at what they do isn't necessarily like the degrees and all that sort of stuff. It's like problem solving. Mm-hmm. It, it's like knowing that um, because you know it's like when you're running your own your own shop and your own business. It's like it's literally just problems coming up every day that you're like, yeah. oh fuck, how do I deal with this? How do I deal with that? How do I deal with this? Yeah, would you agree? Is that something like a skill that is really fine? Because like, I feel like people that don't have that skill or that's not as strong. That's when you can sort of go, fuck, this is too hard. I'm not going to do it anymore. Yeah, like if you're going to complain like too much and feel sorry for yourself, like you you you're fucked, you're in so much trouble. Like um, everything's against you at the start. Like you you got no money, like no one cares. Like, oh, I just wish I could do a TV ad someone. Like, mate, no one, no one cares. You mm. just need to find a way to do it. So you go, well, how do I do this like without money? Like very early days when I was doing photo shoots, I couldn't even afford the smugglers for the guys that were modeling it. I'm like, guys, can you pay costs for these? And like literally charging them to go in it like you just need to to find a way through because as much as you love it and you can see the potential and it's going to be amazing no one else cares mm. like you might have a few close supporters um but at the end of the day it's on you to to figure out a way through it and and if you do it's 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 great and and generally you know, people don't they give up um, the market was against them. They didn't have enough um, funds raised. Um, and, you know, sometimes you do get hit by a black swan event. Like, fuck, if I started a restaurant at the start of COVID, it oh, yeah. doesn't matter who you are. So, you know, if you buy a building, you know, earthquake happens, you're not insured for or something. Like, there's so many things that can, can hit you from the side. Um, and so, you know, 
lots of businesses fail, I guess, without much fault of their their own, but none of them succeed without um, the people in charge of it being able to navigate a lot of murky waters, a lot of roadblocks, a lot of lot of obstacles, and like sometimes it's lonely as well. You're like, fuck, am I the only person um, that's like that's gone through this, and that you know we used to like sell to to retail stores and you know they want to pay you on like 90 days and you're like how like how do people fund this but mm. you know you just got to find a way to get through it and like say in that example for us it's like well sure we're selling heaps of units to to um retail stores but we've got to stop and the business might sell less units but it's going to be a lot easier to manage even if we've got to become smaller for a period of time so yeah, you just got to find a way through. I really like that. What's next for you? Budgie Smuggler and also is there anything else ticking away? Like is there something else you want to do or is it another line or is it something else in the business? Yeah, so uh, Budgie Smuggler, probably the main thing we're expanding to is socks and underwear. Mm. So it's sort of your, your top drawer, um, loosely speaking. Yep. Um, so that that's the main thing. And then business-wise – at the moment, we sell a pair of smugglers every two minutes. We want to get that to every minute of the day. Wow. So that's the um, kind of double over the next two to three years. Um, and then, like, the bigger picture is, like, yeah, building something that, that Australia is proud of, that people who smuggle around the world are proud of. And, you know, as part of that, it's building, um, you know, working with people like yourselves, the great cricketer, um, just other brands that we love and kind of collaborating to make, yeah, again, I don't want to say the word um, community, but like a stronger Australia. I know, or, I know what you mean, but like there's no <laughs> other words for the things yeah. we're trying to say. So you, you want to say business or community? Yeah, or community. I was going to say a stronger business community. <laughs> I don't know. I've actually noticed you call yourself Chief Smuggler. You, you must, you really don't want to call yourself CEO, do yeah, not particularly. Yeah. So it's Chief Smuggler. I just had a kid recently and um, on his birth certificate is uh, Chief Smuggler. That's so, his name. <laughs> his name's Ludwig. That's I pretty know. out there Ludwig. too. <laughs> what do you call him though? Louis. 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 Yeah. So Ludwig was the first king of uh, Louis, if you're listening to this in oh, I'm sure when you can be. understand. Yeah. <laughs> it's four, five months. Uh, yeah, Ludwig was the first king of Hungary, Poland and Croatia. And mum's Polish and her uncle who brought her to Australia um, that was his name. So yeah, that's where Ludwig comes from. Oh, I really like that. Um, mate, it's been unbelievable to get in the show today. I honestly can't thank you enough for your time, um, your knowledge, and yeah, just the, I suppose, our relationship and, and meeting you guys. I'm just blessed to be working with such a, a cool bunch of dudes and also an awesome brand that I, I really love and believe in. So um, I'm sure a lot of people um, are going to learn a lot from that. Awesome. Well, if you see it in Victoria and yeah. you don't like them, Dill started it. Yeah. Yeah. I, this is all me. <laughs> Made it. If that wasn't enough for you and you want even more, you're in luck. Dylan Friends is now on Patreon. Dylan Best Friends. If you'd like to learn more, you can head to patreon.com forward slash Dylan Friends or you can head to the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening to the Dylan Friends podcast. If you like the show, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, leave a review or even share with your friends. The show is produced by myself and Sam Bonza. Damon Jackman from Creative Edge Films is responsible for audio and visual production. The show is recorded at the Dylan Friends Studio in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to get in touch or suggest a guest or advertise with the Dylan Friends podcast, please email us at inquiries at dylanfriends.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.